Sorry for the uh, mic feedback earlier, just trying to make sure everyone's awake. Um, so I was at a men's retreat last weekend, and one of the speakers there was this old, old friend of my family named Mitchell Ellison, and he told this story of uh, being at our church, and I remember this very distinctly. Um, after he had first kind of come to know the Lord, and we were singing, and uh, and, and all of a sudden, I see Mitchell point at the ceiling, let out a loud yell, and just take off running. And I was like, what is going on? It kind of, you know, shocked me a bit. And he was talking about this at the men's retreat, and he said, you know, when I was thinking of the goodness of the Lord and what he had saved me from, I, and I forget where it is in Scripture, but it's like a fire that's caught up in my bones, and I couldn't hold it back. It's like, so I had to yell and take off running. Um, so I thought of that this morning as we give a, you know, polite clap of Jesus rising from the dead. So let's just step out of our comfort zones a little bit. And when we think about Jesus rising from the dead, as believers, what should our response be? It should be a, there we go. Okay. Good. We just need to step out of our cultural comfort zones occasionally. Um, so if anybody starts doing laps while I'm preaching, I'll understand. Um, might throw me off a bit, but it's totally cool. Do what the Lord's prompting you to do. Um, we're going to be reading today, continuing working through the story of the Passion. Um, and so if you could stand with me, we're going to read in Matthew 27. Um, verses 24 through 31. So Matthew 27, 24 through 31. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, Lord, you came to the earth and endured, endured what we never could. Um, Lord, you... You went through so much because of love for us. I pray that you might speak to us this morning, God. Um, take me out of the picture and, and say whatever you want to say. Whatever is coming from me, God, make it forgettable. But whatever's from you, may it, may it pierce our lives and change us. Thank you for your word, Lord. We love you. Amen. Well, two disclaimers uh, before we start. Um, one, 
is the Bible is, uh, is not a very sanitary book. Sometimes we can make it kid-friendly, which is great. I want my, you know, three and six and seven-year-olds to be able to read the Bible and not be uh, totally out of their depth. Um, but we are talking about crucifixion. So um, just, it, crucifixion is not a pretty thing. So I'm going to be talking a bit about that. So parents uh, who have kids in here, um, encourage you to have conversations with them later just to make sure that they're, they're in a good spot. Um, the second disclaimer is when we read Scripture, um, we need to read what Scripture is saying, not what we want it to say. Um, so when I read the story of the Passion of Christ, Matthew's account here, we need to understand what the passage actually says. I was a journalism major, so it's all about, you know, the six W's, the who, what, when, why, and how. How you flip it around, there's a W at the end, it counts. Um, I say that to suggest that we perhaps have a bad habit of, as Christians of making Scripture about us, um, about what we want to see in it. However, I say that also because the beauty of story is that we see ourselves in it. Um, and so it's not just a story, it's the gospel, it's the good news of Christ stepping into our mess and saving us from a fate that we had no chance of avoiding on our own. And so as we see ourselves in the story, I don't want to put what's not actually there in the text. Um, so it's with a little trepidation that we're going to enter into this passage, looking at it from the lens of different people in the story and saying, if I were there, who would I be acting most like? Um, I grew up listening to, to 90s Christian music, uh, some good, some bad. Um, and so as I thought about this, I had third day, third day song, Thief, running through my mind um, because it's a song from the perspective of the thief on the cross. Um, and I love that song because it challenged me to think about, um, think about the story of Jesus and to think about the crucifixion from a lens that, that I had never seen before. Um, you know, I've read that story hundreds of times. Um, but it challenged me to think about the Bible not just as God's word, which it is God's word. Like, please understand and hear that. Um, but to think of the people in the story. Um, and so last week, Andy introduced us to Barabbas. Um, and he's a character that I first imagined as a real person um, when I saw my big brother Ben portray him in this uh, passion play called Tetelestai. Um, and perhaps it was because Ben was my hero at the time, uh, perhaps he really did do an amazing job of portraying Barabbas. Um, but it was the first time I, I imagined Barabbas as a real person and wondered, did Barabbas come away changed by his encounter with the Messiah? Um, after all, his name, Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, Bar means son of, Abbas means the father. Uh, perhaps Barabbas actually became a son of the father through his encounter with Jesus. There's lots of characters in, in the final hours of Jesus' life, and we don't have time to dive deep into all of them. Andy did a great job with Barabbas. Uh, Peter is one I often find compelling because of his contradiction of bravery and cowardice that he displays in just 24 hours. Um, Tony did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about Judas. Um, Help me see Judas in a light I had never seen Judas. Um, 
We'll come across a centurion, Simon of Cyrene, who carries Jesus' cross. There's women at the cross. There's Pharisees. There's so many people that we can observe how they acted um, in that final in, in those final hours, but I, I wanted to focus on the characters from this week. So the first character we encounter in this text is Pilate. The passage opens up with a very telling statement. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. I've had conflicted feelings towards Pilate most of my life, uh, perhaps from that same play I saw, I saw my brother in. Um, the question Pilate asked earlier when he says, what is truth? I always thought that, that, that's a pretty reasonable question. Um, one that Pilate looks, excuse me, my notes, one that Pilate looks like he wrestles with, um, and I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't respond to his question. Jesus was silent. Um, sometimes I think that God gives us a gift of silence because um, it forces us to stop and be still and know that he is God. Um, to be honest, we rarely, if ever, want that gift of God's silence to our questions. I, I never want it. If I ask God something, I'm pleading for an answer. Um, but he doesn't give silence, or he doesn't give Pilate an answer. He gives him silence. And, and I think that if you see Pilate's response to that is he says, I find no basis of fault in him. So in that silence, Pilate sees a glimpse of truth. Right? He sees an innocent man in front of him. Um, but that pilot that exists, that sees the truth, it only exists for a moment because he very quickly turns back to the pressing question of how do I deal with this riot, this, this crowd of civil unrest in front of me? And his answer is to pacify, to give in to the crowd. He was gaining nothing. Pilate's history suggests that he was not one to give in. Um, that he had used brutal force to put down mobs before, um, but perhaps now he was seeing that the times, well, times they were changing. Maybe if I give in this time, I can work this situation to my advantage. So he washes his hands of it. It's a symbolic act um, saying, hey, this one's not on me. This one's not my fault. But as one writer, David Guzik, puts it, you can't escape it. Jesus will not allow you any neutrality. You have to decide what you are going to do with Jesus. And what you do with him does determine your destiny. You see, washing your hands of a situation, it, it doesn't wash your heart. Jesus doesn't give Pilate that out. He doesn't give us that out. The, well, I, I wasn't there excuse, or the Jesus was a good man but not God excuse, or well, that was a different time. I wouldn't have called for his execution. We don't get those outs. Pilate doesn't get that out. We can ask all the right questions in the world and still arrive at the wrong action. I think part of that is because it matters why we're asking those questions. Pilate's far more interested in self-preservation than he is in justice. He's far more interested in what he can gain out of it um, than he is in truth. So then we come across the crowd, the second character, They've been yelling for his crucifixion, yelling to release a notorious thief that could very well have been the intended target for that middle cross. They've been yelling to crucify someone that just a week earlier, they were yelling the crown king. They're shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. Just a week earlier. We are a fickle people. 
we're easily swayed by the current mood, the current trend, the current social hot button. We're not immune to this. Just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you are immune. History, and yes, church history, is full of people who made foolish decisions because that was what the popular sentiment was screaming for. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We of all people are the ones who acknowledge, we say in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. So we shouldn't be surprised that sin is insidious. People have done awful things in the name of God. Even good, God-fearing people I don't doubt were saved by grace Christians have done terrible things. Martin Luther has appalling anti-Semitic published remarks. Jonathan Edwards defended slavery and owned slaves. Many of the thoroughly Christian founding fathers, like George Washington, owned slaves. Churches have landed on the wrong side of the civil rights movement. The the list can go, go on and on. I have a dear friend who's gay, and all he knew of people who called themselves Christians were, oh, those were the ones that spit at me and hit me with their signs. Brothers and sisters, the Bible never said they will know you are Christians by those that you hate. It said you'll know you are Christians by your love for each other. So this, this crowd, it's, it's, it's not like we're, oh, that, that would never be me. Even in this present time, Christians like me are prone to be silent or perhaps too loud on hot-button issues like race, sexuality, religion in public sphere, civil unrest, abortions, etc. My point isn't that we should be silent. My point isn't that we should be speaking up. My point is that our reason for shouting, it should never be the crowd. Our reason for shouting should be for the glory of God and for the service of others. Matthew twenty two thirty seven says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Micah 6, 8, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Have you ever seen the crowd shouting about that? Is that what you shout about? Is that what motivates you? So this crowd, it's shouting, they're shouting, Crucify him! And they call judgment upon themselves. They contradict Ezekiel 18.20, which says, The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The greatest crime in human history was called for by a crowd who essentially said, We don't care. Kill him. And we and our future offspring can take the blame. Side note is this has been misused throughout history to justify anti-Semitism, which is a mockery of the God who says that vengeance is mine, and it's a mockery of the same God who sacrificed all to love and forgive his enemies. He desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't ever cherry-pick one verse as your theological basis for anything. Make sure your interpretation lines up with the rest of Scripture. Have you ever thought that the literal words that they yell, his blood be upon us and our children, that's what we Christians cling to. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. His blood was enough to even cleanse that mob. So the third character we get here are the soldiers. I don't know if you noticed the throwaway line, having scourged Jesus. 
The soldiers, they, they don't come across well in this. In fact, they are very easily the hated instruments used to torture the pure and innocent Son of God. When I was in college, the, the film Passion of the Christ came out in theaters, and I had heard about scourging, um, but it was in watching that movie that I came to the full visual knowledge of what that meant, and I've never seen the movie again. I, I couldn't handle it. Um, I'm going to read a description from the Journal of American Medical Association in 1986 in an article titled On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ by Dr. William Edwards. Edwards says, Scourging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women, Roman soldiers, or Roman senators and soldiers, except in the case of desertion, were exempt. The goal of scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive the cross. Soldiers didn't stop there. After they brutally beat the lamb that was led to the slaughter but did not open his mouth, they proceeded to mock him and to spit on him. My dad used to, and he probably still does, get super serious about us kids spitting on anyone. It was a serious offense to him, not just a childish thing. They spit on Jesus, you would say. They pushed a crown of thorns on his head. Thorns, or the fruit of the fall, the curse to Adam was, you, you will work the ground, but there will be thorns. The fruit of the fall um, was pushed on his head, and the second Adam, who Jesus is compared to, experiences the effects of the first Adam, and they mocked him. Perhaps you don't see yourself committing the physical violence that the soldiers commit. Perhaps you're, perhaps you're a better child than I was, and uh, never spit on anyone. Perhaps you'd never even mock someone openly. I have. I see shades of my sin in the soldiers. But we can also mock Christ in the way that we live. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, You have mocked him by feigned worship, and thus you have put the purple robe on him. For that purple robe meant that they made him a nominal king, a king who is not in truth a king, but a mere show. Your Sunday religion, which has been forgotten in the week, has been a scepter of reed, a powerless ensign, a mere sham. You have mocked and insulted him even in your hymns and prayers, for your religion is a pretense with no heart in it. You brought him an adoration that was no adoration, a confession that was no confession, and a prayer that was no prayer. Is it not so? It's not just in the outward. God never just cared about what we do on the outside. So we come to Jesus, the final, final character. In this passage, he's acted upon by all the other characters. He's thrown away for political expediency by Pilate. He's sentenced by an angry and fickle mob. He's beaten and mocked by a brutal group of soldiers. No one has come to his aid. For a hot second, Peter tried to before he caved and denied him. All his friends fled. 
Jesus is silent in this passage. He's silent for much of the narrative. He doesn't defend himself. I cannot identify with Jesus in this moment. Because I can't pretend that the character I would most identify would be the one that would allow himself to be treated like this. Jesus took it all for me, for you. He bore it for the ones who were crying for his crucifixion. Do you ever notice how the first Christians were all Jews? Probably even some in that crowd. He bore it for the soldiers beating him. How do we get the account of the soldiers beating him? Isn't it possible that some of them came to know Christ after his resurrection and told the story to Matthew? We do know that one of the first ones to confess Jesus' deity post-crucifixion was a centurion who said, surely this man was the Son of God. David Guzik in his commentary says, when Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This, this is exactly the scene that he had in mind. Everyone knew what the cross was. It was an unrelenting instrument of death and only death. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions and spiritual feelings. The cross was a way to execute people. But in these 20 centuries after the death of Jesus, we have sanitized and ritualized the cross. How would we receive it if Jesus said, walk down death row daily and follow me? Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There's no return ticketing. It was never a round trip. Here's the thing. All this happened because it was the Lord's will. Because Jesus willingly said in the garden, not my will, but let yours be done. We can look at this narrative and act like we had nothing to do with it. Like we would have stayed out of this sham trial, the gross miscarriage of justice. Perhaps we will look in and see glimpses of ourselves here. To be the Anuabuile, I'm probably butchering his name, said, people-pleasing and blame-shifting, acknowledging that Christ is innocent without trusting in him. That's a popular strategy, but it's not an effective one. How many times have you heard that Jesus was a good man, a good leader, a good teacher? Blame-shifting will not clear our guilt. It's the oldest trick in the book. One that Adam tried in the garden, we've been trying ever since. It didn't work for Adam. It didn't work for Pilate. It won't work for you. No matter who you identify with in this narrative, I'm guessing that the person you most closely resemble is not Jesus. Not all the time, at least. Dear friends, if you have not put on Christ... If you have not yielded to his call for your life, you're dead in your sins. You're convicted by your actions. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. No matter where you see yourself in the story, you're lost without Jesus. And yet, and yet hope is not lost. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We're going to take communion in a moment. And as we do, we are called to remember and proclaim. So what are we remembering and proclaiming? I love reading stories to my kids. And I tell them that, listen, the good guy always wins in the end. Um, I have to tell them this over and over again because especially my daughter, Izzy, gets really fired up and says, I'm never reading this story again um, when it seems like the bad guy's winning. In the end, the ultimate end, the good man does win. He triumphs over sin and death. My sin, my spiritual death. That's not reading myself in the scripture to say that. That's what scripture says about those that are found in Christ. That no matter who you began identifying with in the story, if you're hidden in Christ, Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So we remember his death. We proclaim his life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we don't deserve you. If we had been there on that day, we, we would have abandoned you just like everybody else. And yet, you didn't turn back, God, in fact, to the very end, you cried, forgive them. You showed us your love to the uttermost. God, so your blood, your blood cleanses us from all sin, God. I pray for, for everyone here, Lord, that if they've never come to the reality that they are lost without you, that they might, uh, they might hear that and grasp the hope that is in you. God, awaken hearts. It's only you who can do that. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We love you. Amen.